Hey guys, welcome to the Ronin Rabbit, a Usagi Ojimbo fan podcast. I'm your host, Ed Moore. This is episode 82, and be aware there are spoilers. Feedback can be tweeted at T-O-T-E-A-L Productions. The Ronin Rabbit has a Google Plus page. On Facebook, I post the episodes on the Usagi Ojimbo Dojo Facebook page. Thank you, Steve. BigTimeNoise.com slash RoninRabbit is the website, and UsagiPodcast at gmail.com is the email. Usagi Ojimbo Volume 3 from Dark Horse Comics, number 9. The story entitled The Conspiracy of Eight, and our dramatis personae, Miyamoto Usagi, Senshobo, the priest from issue three, two or three, I think, of this volume. And a third person that I'm not going to say right now because it's kind of cool at the end that you see who it is. And giving it away at the beginning like this would take away some of the drama of the story. So I'll wait. I do have some feedback uh, from Mr. Steve Hubble. A comment that he left on the website for episode 75 to get to here in a little bit. We open our story on the first page of the book. We see a fight is going on over an arched bridge that is snow-covered, and it is snowing. Subsequent panels, we close in closer and closer on the fighting. And then the fourth and final panel of the page, we see someone on horseback running off shouting, clear a path through the assassins, clear a path, and there are a couple swordsmen on foot in front of him. So this person is the important person. Um, They are attempting to get away while they are given that opportunity by um, other individuals of a different uh, rank, a different class, what, what have you. Ultimately, an archer from the other side shoots the horseman through the shoulder, looses a second arrow, and it kills or damages. It doesn't kill, actually, because um, something occurs that I think is pretty cool here in a minute. Uh, Injures the horse. And the dying horse with the slumped rider rides off. Now, the cool thing is a particular panel where, of course... The image is static. I mean, we're, we're dealing with a, a two-dimensional um, construct here, a, an art form. But the text is of the horse clopping, and that is the word. And it's printed, I don't know, 15 to 20 times, but each time it's a little bit smaller. As you go from the top to the bottom, it's listed vertically implying that, of course, the sound is getting quieter and quieter because that static image, which is all you can do with 2D, is getting farther and farther away from the subject, the reader. And I just thought that was a just a cool little convention to get across the fact that, you know, yes, I know that I can only draw in 2D, but I can still deal with you, the reader, in three dimensions. And the third dimension in essence, was sound rather than distance. But the sound, of course, implied distance. Sorry if that's a little, you know, nerdy or geeky or obvious for people. I just, I thought it was a a cool thing that Mr. Sakai did. Now, there is um, evident on one side, on many members of the, the fighting group, the Mon, 
which I did not pick up until later in the story and came back forward to look and see if I had missed it, and indeed I had. But uh, there is a mon, uh, which is a crest, uh, on some of the individuals involved in this fighting. And if you have paid close enough attention, you have put together uh, who these soldiers are a part of, what clan they're a part of that that mon represents. Um, and unfortunately, I don't typically pay that close attention, plus my memory is not the greatest. So even when they mentioned it later on when Usagi notices it, I, I still did not recall straight away that that Mon was representative of that particular clan. Uh, but so it is, and we'll find out a little later in the story, I'll tell you. So those astute would have recognized it. I was not one of those astute. I was very much the, uh, what was it, what is it, Kohai to uh, Mr. Sakai's senpai there. Well, So the horse continues riding off for about half an hour, the narrator tells us. Uh, we have a shot here of a tokagi. I like seeing the tokagi whenever they venture into the scenes. Finally, the horse collapses and dies, we know for sure. Two reasons this time. One is because we see the little um, text bubble, of course, with the death skull in it, which is uh, Mr. Sakai's convention for death. Um, I think it's also used by Sergio Aragonis with Gru, which... Interestingly enough, Mr. Sakai is also involved with, so maybe that was his idea there, or he brought it over to his creation, who knows. But also, the horse is laying on the ground with his face on the ground, his eyes wide open, and his tongue sticking out. So, I guess, artistically, that is supposed to show that the horse is dead, right? Because I don't I don't have much experience with horses, but I guess they don't normally lie around with their head on the ground and their tongue hanging out, so... Between the two, no confusion, the horse finally died. The rider, on the other hand who has been pierced completely through the shoulder with the arrow, and the arrow is still there. So other than the pain, he should be in pretty good condition because he is not bleeding out because the wound is closed by the inclusion of the arrow. When you play Dungeons & Dragons, my friend, never pull the arrow out unless you are somewhere that you can get immediate aid because once you do, the wound is open, you'll bleed out, and that's it. Leave the arrow in there. These things where they break it off and pull it out and everything on TV and no. No, because then you'll bleed out before you get help, and you know because of you, you were a goober. So he's he's soldiering on, and that's kind of right a joke, ironic because he's a samurai. Okay, never mind. Um, comes to a uh, you can't. It's a gate, a gated something, a gated fortress, a gated house. You can't really tell. He struggles up the stairs, half climbing, half pulling himself, half walking, gets to the gate, slumps, of course, very dramatic, slumps, beating on the gate, please help, in very wobbly words, beating on the gate, beating on the gate, saved, I'm, and then he finally passes out. Somebody runs up to the gate, I'm coming, I'm coming, yes, what is it? And he looks around and looks around, and then over here to the side, he sees the injured samurai. Inside, we see... Senshobo and Usagi sharing tea. Uh, Senshobo has uh, has fun at Usagi's expense, throwing out the word Ronin, uh, masterless samurai for us here. Messenger comes up, interrupts their tea, and tells Senshobo, who must be the head priest of this particular uh, gathering, uh, I don't know, monastery, I'm not sure what you would call the group, uh, tells him a wounded samurai has been found outside the temple gates. And immediately, 
Sensobo and Usagi go to investigate. They start looking things over. Sensobo shows that he most definitely was a former military man, and we'll see this a little bit later, even more vividly in the story. Um, if if you don't recall from his initial appear- appearance, he was a a ronin as well that went the way of enlightenment and became a priest. He's a very big, broad-shouldered, square-chinned character. I believe the character is a cat of some sort. Looks like... Does that look like a cat to you? I'm I'm asking my most esteemed spouse. It looks cat-like. Yeah, okay. Some sort of walker. It'd be cool if it was a koala because he's a big burly... But yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a koala. <laughs> Uh, and here Usagi notices on the outfit of the injured man the black sun Mon, Mon being crest, which represents the clan of Lord Hikiji, the uber big bad in the Usagi world, of course. Senshobo's looking over the arrow, sees that it's not just a simple arrow. It is a true warrior's weapon that was used. So some sort of warrior is who shot uh, Hikiji's man. Usagi's checking him out, finds a letter, opens it, sees immediately, which I thought was a little interesting, that it's written in blood. So it is a blood oath. Senshobo tells us what it says. We whose names appear here signed in our own blood and witnessed by our handprints, dedicate our lives and honor to the overthrow of the shogunate and to reinstate our divine emperor, descended from the gods as the rightful ruler of the nation. And then Senshobo observes there are eight signatures, some of the greatest lords in the land. Hmm. Hence the title of the story, The Conspiracy of Eight. So now there's a discussion back and forth between Usagi and Senshobo over multiple panels as to what to do with the letter. Usagi, turn it over to the Shogun. Senshobo, no, the men will be killed. Usagi, send it to uh, the Gaishu clan. Senshobo, no, they're loyal to the Shogun. That's the same thing. So back and forth, until finally Senshobo says very pragmatically, well, I'll tell you what, let's worry about what is coming next as we have a man with this kind of letter who has been shot that we took in. Someone must be looking for him. So immediately they go out and Senshobo starts posting extra watch, guarding this, guarding that, be astute, be leery, be wary. The whole, a a very military uh, kind of situation he's treating it as, but bear in mind that his men are mere priests in training and or priests. That's, you know, that's what they are. Soon enough, a group bearing no mon come up and ask if they have taken in a wounded criminal. We tracked him here. Is he inside? Senshobo, of course, says it's Nunya. Uh, the man outside says, it is ours, and they attack. Usagi and Senshobo, Senshobo wielding one of those cool prince, uh, prince, excuse me, priest staves that at the top has a metal ring 
with smaller rings attached to that upper ring so that you know it, it makes all that noise when it shakes and, and shimmers and jimmies and whatnot. He, he's fighting with one of those. Uh, I meant to look it up before I recorded the significance of that style, but I did not. However, I will at some point because it is interesting. I have seen it before, TVs and movie. So it must have deeper significance than just a trope. Or, you know, Mr. Sakai would not necessarily use it. He's been fairly traditional in the things that he does. Now, he does draw, of course, a lot from uh, movies in particular, from literature that he has cited. So I'll be curious to find out what kind of real uh, world connection there is with that type of staff. They defeat the men, not killing any, only disarming. And basically, you know, they, they give them the kick in the butt as they're bending over. Now, go on, get out of here, kind of send off and as typical of the bad guys the one of them whomever might be could be the leader you know turns around shakes the fist will be back my my lord will be back with more men you know that whole kind of, yeah it, it happens here we, we've seen it before they go usagi and senshobo go back inside now we see senshobo's military career kick in he immediately says They may use fire arrows, fill all our jars with water from the well, soak blankets for smothering out blazes, extinguish the torches. I want two men posted at each wall, call out if they try to climb into the enclosure. And Usagi is standing watching the preparations, thinking to himself, wow, it's easy to see that he was uh, a general that once served a daimyo, which is feudal lord. Uh, I I think kind of the equivalent, you know, of of king, uh, like medieval England. So Senshobo and Usagi retire back inside. We cut, we're told, hours later. They're waiting, expecting an attack. One of the sentries calls out. Usagi and Senshobo go. They look out into the distance and in a nice little valley made between the trees. You know, off in the distance, they see many, many torches. They see many, many more torches than they have men. So they're like, okay. This is, it's going to be. Then they they step out to their gate, exit the front gate, and they're listening, you know, looking around. And Sensobo says, uh, hmm, sounds of chopping. They're felling a tree. Usagi agrees, making a battering ram to break down the gate. And this is where it kind of dawns on Sensobo that despite his military training, his men are not. So, you know, he, he truly fears for them. Uh, as as a a father figure would, but also because they you know I, I'm doing this militarily and and they have no military training. I, I don't know what I'm doing. And Usagi says that is not you know we cannot look at it that way now. So they go back inside and they see one of the junior priests walking around and he slips and falls and uh, another priest walks up to him and is helping him up and says oh man I'm, I'm sorry I spilled some water when I was filling my buckets it must have turned to ice and so Usagi and Sashobo get the idea at the same time oh water ice so they yell out for buckets of water buckets and buckets bring all the water you can and that's all we see because next we have a couple archers firing fire arrows and the siege begins the bad guys trying to gain entry, first with fire arrows, then with the battering ram. Usagi and Senshobo 
um, initiating the preparations they've been made. We see on the inside of the gate, Usagi says to one of the other initiates, remember, don't make a move without my word. And with the battering ram, the bad guys charge the gate, and Usagi and the initiate rip open the gate, and we see, sure enough, there's a huge layer of ice just inside the gate. And those with the battering ram run and fall to four, six, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve of them carrying this battering ram fall. Three or four come up, bring up the rear. They they don't engage with the ice, but the others do and lose immediately. Usagi jumps on them and says, it's up to me to handle those raiders who didn't fall into our trap. So he gets those of the rear guard first. The others, uh, he, he steps out of the gate to the outside and is fighting. The initiates taking care of uh, subduing one way or another those that fell prey to the ice trap. Meanwhile, over to the side, we see a cat uh, who led the first sortie that got driven off with, uh, with much embarrassment. Uh, say to himself, fools. And he runs around to the side and, and uses a, um, a tri-hook, or almost looks like a cow trap, but it's not. It's a, a three-pronged climbing thing. Very small, I thought. Throws it up over the wall, climbs up over the wall, uh, runs forward enough to peer and see that everyone is engaged. We next see him in the building, runs up on the guard that is protecting Lord Hikiji's man, who will live, uh, but is unconscious right now, you know, recovering. Usagi, yelling and screaming out front, finally, uh, the head priest joins him, and the two finish off the remaining bad guys who assaulted the fortress here. They're looking around, and then all of a sudden, another initiate comes running from the building, crying out for Priest Senshobo, telling him that the uh, guard Jiro is dead. And then he and Usagi are like, dang it, we've, one must have got by. And so they run in to see what's going on. And sure enough, the guard is dead. Senshobo is upset because he told the man to guard this person with his life. And the... Hikiji messenger is dead, but also the guard is dead. So he he truly did what he was beseeched to do by his master. Usagi asks about and finds that the conspiracy document is gone. Next up, we see another fortress somewhere, a castle. It's snowing, but inside is this uh, cat handing the letter over to somebody. They're saying, you have done well, Kagamaru. Are you sure it's not a forgery? And they talk back and forth, back and forth. Finally, the person picks it up. We see a female hand pick it up, and he refers to her as Chizu. The current head of the Nico Ninja now has this conspiracy document in a, a rising conflict that could prove very important for the Nico to have, even though they are already employed by Lord Hikiji. That is not why she got it. She got it to protect her clan, regardless of what other clan they work for. Her first um, job is to protect her clan. Via this emissary, uh, what did I say his name was? I'm sorry. Kagamaru. Um, She finds that during the attack, he did see fighting like a whirlwind, a long-eared samurai. She immediately realizes who's that. Who that? Wow. Who? 
she immediately realizes who that is. Been podcasting all day. Sorry, guys. And she thinks to herself as she's kind of bent forward, her eyes closed, clutching this letter. Oh, Usaki, I pray you do not get involved in all of this. And there we go. On the um, letters page, Mr. Sakai tells us here for in one of the answers, the best book on Musashi is a book called Musashi by Iiji Yoshikawa, who also wrote the Haiki story about the 12th century civil war and Taiko, Taiko, excuse me, about Hideyoshi and the wars of the 16th century. In Agaki's The Samurai Trilogy, Mayamoto Usagi, Duel at Ichiyoji Temple and Duel at Gunru Island adapts Musashi and is available on video. I believe I've mentioned those before. The best book on mythology that I found is Japanese Mythology by Juliette Pigeot. And if you're not intimidated by footnotes for mythology, look for Kojiki's Record of Ancient Matters and Nihongi's Chronicles of Japan from Earliest Times to A.D. 697. So, those of you that are into antiquarian Japanese knowledge, there is some some sources for you. Alright, now we did have, as I said, a mentioning um, of a comment by Mr. Hubble. First, I want to apologize. This is three months old. Um, I have recorded since this was posted, and I missed it, and I apologize for that. That truly does make me feel badly because people take the time to interact with me, and I hate that there are times that I um, I delay for reasons that are pretty lame and weak sauce. Uh, passing it over is pretty lame and weak sauce. I, I need to do better. But Steve says... Thank you for another nice episode. Your questions about how Kitsune acquired the magistrate's Kinshaku. Now, this is referencing issue two of this current run. I thought, and I still think, but it, it is because of the limitations of one book, and I understand that, that there were some jumps that you had to be very observant to catch the, the filling of, of the holes as the story jumped somewhat. And I made mention that I, I had missed those. Steve did not. Um, the Kinshaku question is answered in the second page, he continues, uh, second panel on page 19 of the story. In the panel, which shows the magistrate being greeted, Irshimase, at the end, that's what the uh, person at the door says. You can also see Kitsune with a big guilty smirk on her face, implying that she just swiped his purse, the magistrates. So I believe I caught that. And on and the reason why she is in Yoriki Masuda's residence was explained on page 24, uh, the last page, in the third panel, where Kitsune comments on the fate of the Yoriki and the purses we planted in his home. So, Kitsune was responsible for all that. It was not shown to us, but it was hinted, uh, tongue-in-cheeked at us, as it were, and um, subtly that I, I I think upon retrospect that I remembered seeing those. Obviously, at the time that I recorded, I had not. So, I suppose that means I need to pay a little bit closer attention when I read these books, because there are, apparently are things that I am missing. 
So hopefully I will do that better next episode when I talk about issue 10 of the current volume of Usagi Yojimbo. I will speak with you guys at that time. Ciao. The Ronin Rabbit Podcast is a Teal production, and as such, is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, non-derivatives, 3.0, unported license.